This podcast contains coarse language, dark humor, descriptions of violence, and opinions that will probably piss you off. Listener discretion is advised. When I say Alabama, what do you think of? Is it having a big bowl of possum stew with your bruncle? Is it civil rights? Is it delicious barbecue? All bad jokes aside, today we're going to take a close look at three cases from this historical state. Maybe it's the heat, or maybe southern hospitality isn't as common here, but Alabama has a higher violent crime rate than the national average. To impose the death penalty on someone in Alabama, at least ten jurors must recommend it. Until 2018, the only options were lethal injection and electrocution. A new method recently suggested is nitrogen hypoxia, which has been compared to what happens to passengers on a plane when it depressurizes. This option was proposed due to the lethal injection drugs being more difficult to get as well as to reduce the number of botched executions. Alan Eugene Miller was the first person to ask for nitrogen hypoxia in Alabama. Miller, a man convicted of shooting three of his former co-workers in 1999, actually survived the first attempt to execute him due to the prison's inability to establish an IV line according to protocol. After the death warrant expired, he was sent back to his cell. Despite his request to be executed by nitrogen hypoxia, he may end up being the first person in U.S. history to face a second execution attempt by lethal injection. As of the time of writing, March of 2023, Miller is still sitting on death row. As a wife, I find cases of crimes perpetrated by husbands against their wives to be exceptionally disgusting. And before I get too much further into this, no, I'm not going on a feminist tirade about how all men are evil and should be feared. I don't believe that at all. My heart just aches for those who are victimized by the men who they've devoted their lives to. You can't help but wonder what drives a man to take the life of the woman he's legally and often spiritually bound himself to. To be frank, it's usually sex. They're running around sticking their dicks into someone else and the wife is in the way. But rather than do the decent thing and just get divorced, they slaughter their other half. Or in the case of Larry Jean Heath, they hire someone else to do it. On August 31st of 1981, a lineman for a utility company in Troop County, Georgia, discovered an abandoned car in the woods with a body inside. The deceased was a young woman with a single gunshot wound to the head. She would be identified as 21-year-old Rebecca McGuire Heath, a resident of Phoenix City, Alabama. Unfortunately, I was not able to find a lot of details about this young woman's life. At the time of her death, she was nine months pregnant. Police in Georgia and Alabama worked together to quickly find and arrest her husband, Larry Jean Heath. During his interrogation, Heath admitted to having a conversation with his brother Jerry about hiring someone to kill Rebecca. Larry and Jerry, that's creative. Anyway... He was suspicious that the baby she was carrying was not his, but rather her ex-fiance's. Oh, and you can't forget that sweet life insurance policy she had. But you know what they say, 
If they accuse you of cheating, there's a pretty good chance that they're the one running around behind your back. It turns out that Larry had been having an affair with a woman named Denise Lambert. Despite being married to Rebecca, he had given Denise an engagement ring and ordered invitations to be made for their upcoming wedding. What's worse in the long run, though? Going through a divorce or getting the chair for murder? Don't answer that. The NSA is listening. Jerry, being the wonderful brother that he was, put Larry in touch with two other men who would do the deed for him. For a measly $2,000, Charles Owens and Gregory Lumpkin agreed to take Rebecca out. Where did he get this $2,000? From a loan he had convinced his wife to co-sign on in order to do some home improvements. The plan was for the men to slip inside the house when Larry wasn't home and kidnap Rebecca before staging a fatal car accident. You get what you pay for, though. Owens and Lumpkin ended up driving Rebecca over 50 miles into the neighboring state of Georgia before shooting her once in the head and dumping her body in the back seat of her car. They then tied a brick to the gas pedal and let the car drive off into the woods. Because, you know, you gotta make it look like an accident. Owens, Lumpkin, and Jerry Heath were arrested a few weeks after the murder. The Georgia prosecutor decided he would be seeking the death penalty against everyone but Jerry Heath. To walk out of court with his life, Larry Heath decided to plead guilty to the murder charge. He was given a life sentence in February of 1982, but only two months later, the state of Alabama charged him with capital murder. He was extradited, found guilty, and sentenced to death. I chose this case at random while browsing through the results of a Google search. I had no idea there was a behemoth of a legal battle in here. Heath, being the cowardly bastard that he was, appealed his conviction. The only issue his defense attorneys brought up was that he couldn't be charged twice for the same offense. Double Jeopardy, that wonderful thing that was put into place to protect people from being subject to the embarrassment and expense of being dragged through the mud more than once for the same crime. The Supreme Court rejected his appeal on the grounds of dual sovereignty. What the hell is dual sovereignty? I had never heard of that before. Apparently, in the absence of a statute, the rule against double jeopardy applies only to offenses in the same sovereignty. So in simpler terms, you can be charged for the same crime twice so long as the second charge is not in the same state. This also applies to charges filed in federal court. You might be able to escape the wrath of the state, but the federal government could still get you. Heath tried and tried to appeal on various grounds, including ineffective assistance of counsel, denial of a fair and impartial jury, and the violation of the privilege against self-incrimination. He wasn't going to back down. He even tried to say that Alabama had no jurisdiction in the murder, as only the kidnapping took place there. The Alabama Criminal Code specifies that murder by the defendant during a kidnapping is a capital offense. He was screwed no matter what angle he tried. I have to hand it to him, though. Despite being a piece of shit, he was very thorough in trying to cover his own ass. Charles Owens was sentenced to death for his role in the crime, but the conviction was reversed on appeal and he pled guilty in order to avoid a retrial. He was given life. Gregory Lumpkin was convicted and given a life sentence. 
Jerry Heath and Denise Lambert pled guilty to their charges and were both given 10-year sentences. Larry Jean Heath was executed on March 20, 1992, after serving a little more than nine years. His final meal was a breakfast of eggs and grits. He didn't end up getting a final dinner. His last words were, If this is what it takes for there to be healing in their lives, so be it. Father, I ask forgiveness for my sins. I'm not a religious person at all, but I like to think that if God really does exist, he doesn't forgive adulterous murderers for killing their pregnant wives. Our next case brings us from one side of Alabama to the other, to a town called Theodore. In 1976, a 23-year-old convenience store clerk named Cheryl Lynn Payton was kidnapped from her job and taken to a rural part of Mobile County, Alabama. Her assailant raped her in the front seat of his truck before taking her out into a field and shooting her once in the head. He dragged her body into a wooded area before fleeing the scene. But this sick son of a bitch wasn't done tormenting this poor woman. He returned the next day to mutilate her body. Thankfully, his need to come back to the scene of the crime bit him in the ass. He was observed at the crime scene and apprehended after a chase. The man in question was identified as... I'm going to butcher this name, so I apologize. Thomas Warren Wisenant? I'm not really sure. That's, that's a tricky one. <laughs> a 29-year-old man from Pritchard, Alabama. He sang like a canary after they caught him. Not only had he taken the life of this young convenience store clerk, but also two other women in Mobile County. Wisenant, the last of four children, was born into a poor family in 1947. His mother Emma was very domineering and abusive towards her husband. She encouraged her children to attack him as well. This seems to be a theme with violent psychopaths, doesn't it? Mommy issues. According to Wisenant's older sister, Evelyn Stevens, young Thomas slept in his mother's bed from birth until he was seven years old. Even after this, he shared a room with her until he was 16. On a personal note, I've let my kids sleep in my bed before. Only after a bad dream or a restless night, but this is just fucking weird. Emma wouldn't let her youngest son out of her sight. Even after he got a car, she made it a point to go to the gas station with him just to keep an eye on him. I like spending time with my kids as much as any decent mom does, but goddamn, cut the cord already. I know they didn't have all the data on serial killers that we do now, but being a helicopter mom is not good for a child's development. Kind of seems like common sense to me. One night in 1963, while Evelyn was making candy, she heard what she thought was a car backfiring. It turned out to be a gunshot. Their elderly neighbor had been murdered and the weapon was dumped in an empty lot next to their home. Thomas was an instant suspect. By this point, he had become very familiar to the Pritchard police. He had been suspected of having some involvement with purse thefts and assaults on young girls. When questioned about the death of the elderly woman, Thomas was indifferent. Despite being told by his parents that he had been home all night, the cops arrested him. While in jail, a minister talked to Wisenant and relayed to Evelyn that her brother was a very sick young man. 
When Evelyn mentioned this to her mother, Emma, her response was, What do you want me to do? I don't have any money. I don't know what to do. The police department recommended that Thomas receive some kind of psychiatric help, but his parents didn't like the idea. They didn't think anything was wrong with their son. Years later, when Wisenant was in the Air Force, he was charged with beating a female member of the Air Force and sentenced to 20 years in a federal prison. While there, he was repeatedly diagnosed as a dangerous, homicidal psychotic. For whatever reason, his sentence was reduced to 10 years and he was released on parole in 1973. Good job, government. That was a real smart decision. Just two years later, in 1975, he'd attack a 28-year-old convenience store clerk named Patricia Hitt, beating her before shooting her to death. On April 16th of 1976, he attacked yet another woman working in a convenience store. What is this dude's fascination with gas station clerks? Oh my god. He took 44-year-old Venora Hyatt out to an old house somewhere and killed her before dumping her body near an abandoned shack. He returned to this scene to mutilate her body the next day. In addition, he stole a watch off her wrist and gave it to his wife as a gift. Six months later to the day is when he would rape and kill Cheryl Lynn Payton and be caught. Wisenant was convicted of Cheryl's murder and sentenced to death. He later pled guilty to Patricia and Venora's murders. This man sat on death row for 32 years. Prosecutorial errors and many appeals kept him alive until May 27, 2010, when he was executed by lethal injection. His attorney fought for 23 years saying that he was mentally ill and the state shouldn't execute a paranoid schizophrenic. While I don't doubt that he had issues from dealing with his mother, I don't believe we can pin this one on mental illness. Some family members of the victim said after the execution that his death was too easy and that justice wasn't served. I have to agree. His last meal was chicken leg quarters, french fries, American cheese, orange drink, tang, I'm assuming, coffee, and chocolate pudding. Not sure why he chose a bunch of super-processed food as the last thing to fill his stomach, but hey, I'm not the one on death row. He declined to offer any final words. A more recent case is that of Dante Callan, an 18-year-old man convicted of a crime I can't wrap my head around. Around 4 a.m. on October 29, 2010, Emergency services responded to an apartment in Birmingham where a fire had been reported. One of the first firefighters on scene reported that he tried the front door but found it to be blocked. He pulled the body of an unconscious woman from behind the door and was able to go inside. According to neighbors, the woman wasn't the only one trapped in the blaze. Inside, two more bodies were discovered. After realizing that all three victims were covered in blood, they called the police department. It was determined that the fire was not accidental and that it had been started by someone lighting a pile of clothes on fire. The bodies recovered from the apartment were those of Bernice Kelly, Cortez Kelly, and Aaliyah Budges. 
It didn't take long to find a suspect. In the hospital, police came into contact with Dante Callan, who was covered in cuts and had a red substance in one of his ears. Callan appeared to be nervous. It was requested that he be taken to the police station for questioning. It was here that he confessed to what he had done. He had stabbed all three victims to death. His cousin Cortez was stabbed 33 times in the upper torso and left in a bathroom. Aaliyah, who was only 12 years old at the time, had 25 sharp force injuries to her neck and head and was left near the bathroom. And his great-aunt Bernice had been stabbed 18 times in the upper body and left near the front door. All three ultimately died of these wounds, but it came out in court that Bernice had been found still alive, covered in flames. She had been transported to the hospital, but unfortunately succumbed to her wounds. I can't find anything on why Callan committed this atrocity against his own family. It all happened so fast, I don't know why I did it. He tried saying that his level of intoxication should be a mitigating factor. Before I quit drinking, I had more than my share of drunken blackouts, and absolutely none of them have resulted in me slaughtering my family. The court instructed the jury that in order for his claims to be valid, his level of intoxication must amount to insanity. It was also claimed that Callan had an abusive childhood. He had been living with Bernice until a few months before the murders. Department of Human Resources documents stated that Callan's upbringing had been unstable and that he had moved frequently while he was growing up. He was expelled from school in the 11th grade for domestic violence. I guess he was kind of doomed from the start. A poor upbringing, learning difficulties, and substance abuse make a lethal cocktail. It's a shame that three innocent people, including a child, had to lose their lives to this disturbed individual. Is there anything to be learned here? Is there anything that can be done to prevent tragedies like this? Or are some people just born into situations so fucked up that there is no possible positive outcome? Dante Callan is still alive on death row to this day. William Bush is the longest-serving death row inmate in the state of Alabama. He was convicted of shooting three people in two different convenience stores in 1981. One of them survived and was able to describe him. Bush has been sitting on death row since 1984. That's 38 years. I understand the appeal process takes time, but goddamn, that's a long time to be waiting to die. Old age will probably get him before the state gets the opportunity. That's going to do it for this first real episode of The Last Meal Podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe on whatever platform you found me on. I look forward to telling more stories of the condemned. You can follow me on Instagram at lastmealpod as well. I'm still a little unorganized, but my plan is to do these bi-weekly. Hopefully, I can keep to that schedule. Please be patient with me. I'm a full-time mom and a full-time night shift zombie, so this may not always be my priority. Cursed is the man who dies, but the evil done by him survives. See you next time.